I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. At age 15, Amanda began drinking alcohol, which started her on a destructive path toward addiction, homelessness, and dangerous relationships that lasted many years and ultimately led to her arrest and conviction for the part she played in an armed robbery. Amanda was sent to prison for her crime, and it was there, behind bars, that she found hope, which ultimately changed the course of her life. Amanda, who is now a peer support specialist at an addiction facility and a staff member of her church, counsels and encourages young women and men to turn away from the harmful path she had taken earlier in her life. In today's episode, Her Life Was Saved in Prison, our guest, Amanda Rector, will share her inspirational story. I'd now like to welcome Amanda to our show. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, James. Thank you for having me. We're really glad to have you. Amanda, I'd like to start by asking you, where were you born and raised? Okay. I was born in Orangeburg, South Carolina. It's this tiny little town. I guess it's not too tiny, but it's pretty small and it's got a lot of country little towns around it. They don't even have a stoplight. I think they have like $1 general, you know? So it's kind of country is where I grew up. (laughs) Are your family roots from that area? Actually, it's kind of weird. Now my mom grew up here, but my dad came and he went to school at USC. He studied Civil War history. So he came from California, but then they met up and they had me. So you're born and raised in South Carolina. What were some of your early childhood memories? So my mom and my dad separated when I was five or six years old. And both of my parents had their amazing point. I remember my dad would take me and my brother outside at night he would teach us the constellations I and mean, we would find out who the big dipper and the seven sisters. And we had this book that if you held it up to the light, it would glow. So then you would take it outside and you have this glow book and you would look up at the stars. It was amazing. We had a great time. And my mom was really cool. She took us to the river. Just like I told you, we're real country, bold peanuts, Mountain Dew, the river, swimming, trying not to get killed, you know, in the current. But um, <laughs> it was good. I had a pretty good childhood, I would say. I went to a private school, but we didn't have private school money. So that was a bit of a challenge. I didn't really fit in at school too much. Growing up as a kid, did you like sports or did you have any hobbies or anything like that? I like to read. I'm an introvert. I, I get shy until I started hanging out and partying. I didn't really have any friends. And I just read, I've read a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. So you liked reading and did you end up going to college? Yes, I did go to college. When I was in high school, I told you I was an introvert, very, very shy. And I remember going to a party with my friends. It was a fall night and we drove down this long, dark country road. And then we finally pulled up in this field and all these trucks were like circled around and there was like these big teenagers having a party. I had never drank alcohol before. My boyfriend went to go scoop me up in that red solo cup. 
something to drink and he handed it to me. And I was like, what is this? He said, it's called PJ. And if you know, you know, I'm sure there's people who will hear this and they'll be like, I know exactly what PJ is. So, (laughs) but for those of you who do not know, it is like Hawaiian punch. I know that was in it and Everclear and fruit. They would soak it overnight so that the fruit would suck up the alcohol or something. I don't know. And he told me, you're lightweight. You're just a wee little thing. Don't eat the fruit. And I was like, okay. I was the kind of kid who I never really knew what to do with my hands. It was before phones and texting. So I couldn't just pretend like I was on my phone. I was always just awkward. When I tasted that drink for the first time, something happened. I could feel the effect of the alcohol going through me and it transformed me. It made me funnier, flirtier, and the music sounded better. And I wasn't so awkward. And I wasn't thinking about like what to do with my hands. I was holding a drink. I finally had something to do with my hands. And I loved the effect of alcohol. And I remember getting down to the bottom of the cup, seeing like the fruit at the bottom of the cup, popping it back, chewing it up and wanting that effect of alcohol. I was, like I said, shy, but I was kind of brave when it came to drinking. I was 15 and I would go to liquor stores and sit outside of them and wait for people to walk in. And if I thought they looked cool, I would ask them to buy me liquor. Most of them did. It's so crazy how many people were willing to buy a 15-year-old a bottle of Crown Royal. And I would get Crown Royal because I wanted to have the little purple bag and be able to go to school with it and put my pencils in it and stuff, pretend like I was cool. I was a child. But I loved the effect that alcohol had on me. It made me into the person that I wanted to be. And I thought I was a better person when I was drinking. I thought I was more interesting and prettier and funnier. So I went to college and I found my people. (laughs) That's how college started. I went to Coastal Carolina and I went to some parties and I started drinking and doing other drugs grades got really, really bad. That was probably my first year in college was just a lot of partying. In fact, my GPA was (laughs) 0.46. How do you even get a GPA that low? (laughs) It sounded to me like you started with this partying then when you were still in high school, but when Mm -hmm. you went to college, you automatically gravitated to Mm -hmm. that group because you felt like you were sort of emboldened or something like that. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I wasn't very good at playing an instrument or I wasn't good at sports. I'm still not good at sports, but like, I felt like I was good at drinking. I would hold my alcohol well. I never had hangovers. I felt like, okay, I finally found my thing that I'm good at and it's drinking. So I'm going to pursue it with everything I got. And that was kind of my mindset when I was about 18. So how long were you able to stay in college? I was in college for probably about a year and a half. I remember me and my friend were walking to a convenience store or something, and I saw an attractive young man. And all of my stories start with, so I met this guy. (laughs) You'll see that throughout. (laughs) He was just covered in tattoos, and he had his lip pierced, and he had kind of a hard look on his face. And I was like, oh, that's my type. So I introduced myself to him and he and I started dating immediately. I think that's when things kind of went from bad to worse because he didn't go to college. He 
lived in an apartment with three of his friends. I was failing out of college. So it seemed natural for me to just move in with them. But they did some professional partying. They partied a lot more than what I had been exposed to at that point. They were the big leagues. Yeah. So what happened then? I was smoking pot, drinking a lot, and living there with these four guys who were going to work at a tire store every day. And I remember my dad came down to see me and I introduced him to the man I had met. And my dad was just, what in the world? As soon as he saw him, you know, (laughs) and I was like, daddy, don't worry. It's not like I'm going to marry him or anything. So a few months later, I married him. (laughs) (laughs) We started partying and somebody came over one day. So I'll never forget it. I was hanging out one night and this guy came over and he had a bottle of pain pill. It was at the beginning of the opiate epidemic and he offered one to me and I took it. I remember it so clearly because that was one of the biggest turning points in my life. Deciding to do it just one time. I just want to try it. Just making that decision, it completely altered my life because I loved it. I love the effect that opiates had on me. I started pursuing opiates more than alcohol, more than marijuana. I didn't care about anything. All I cared about was that pill. And I made it my full-time job, getting that pill, getting money to get that pill, and then using that pill. So from the moment you woke up in the morning until you went to bed at night, that's what you were thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a strong narcotic. I got just as hooked as any addict would be. When people who get addicted to opiates, they actually go through withdrawals if they don't have the opiate in their system. And after 12 hours or so, I would get sick. I would physically get sick. And withdrawals are the worst feeling on the planet. The worst case of the flu you could ever have. Oh boy. Was your husband at the time going through the same thing? Was he using the same type of medication? Oh yeah. We were one in the same. We were a team. We did everything together. Around that time, I got pregnant and I was able to kind of like hold it in the road for the most part during the pregnancy. Not perfect, but I held it in the road. When my son was born, his name is Jameson. uh, I remember being in the hospital room and they handed him to me And he came out eight pounds and nine ounces. He was big and he was so chunky, like in the cheeks. He was so cute. I felt so much love for him when he was born. I felt overcome with sincere motherly love for my child. And people would come by the hospital room and they were like, all right, y'all going to have to straighten up. No more running the roads. You got a baby to take care of. And I was like, you don't even have to tell me. I love this child. No more nonsense. I'm never doing that again. And if you had given me a lie detector test on that day, I would have passed it because I honestly believed that I was done with drugs and alcohol and I was going to be the best mother that I could be for the sake of this little boy. Yeah, you were sincere. I was. As we were leaving the hospital room, I remember we were packing him up, getting his little outfit on that he leaves in and all the flowers and the teddy bears, an old drug dealer came by. You know, he's not just a drug dealer. He's kind of a friend too. He came by because he wanted to see the baby and he wanted to say congratulations. And he looked at the baby and he looked at us and he was like, I'm so proud of you guys. 
all the best. I wish you the best. And then when he left, he kind of like shook my hand. And when I pulled my hand back, there were two pain pills in my hand. He had given us these two pain pills. I looked at my husband and I showed him and I was like, oh my gosh, what do we do? We can't just throw them away, can we? Together, we made the decision that we were going to do it one more time. We were just going to use one more time and that was going to be it. One more time led to us opening cards that family had sent and the money would come out and the money would go straight to buy more pain pills. Around that time, they started cracking down on the opiate situation. Heroin came into play. And so that's when I started abusing heroin. Was that an easy transition to that drug? It was. It's not easy to get enough money to come up with heroin money like every day. It costs so much money. And my baby, he needed things too. Like he needed Pampers and Similac. I would go into grocery stores and I would fill his diaper bag up with the things that he needed and I would zip it up and I would push the buggy out the door and I would be so scared that the alarm was going to go off and that they were going to catch me. And sometimes they did. I just didn't have the money and I wasn't able to be a good mother to him. I was a terrible mother. I loved him with all my heart, but I wasn't able to be a good fit mother for him while I was addicted to drugs. Eventually, we got to the point that we were intravenous drug users. Things got a little crazy. And because, I hope this isn't too graphic, but because it was so hard to get money, I began to work as, how can I say it with like that pretty euphemism? I began to entertain men in the evenings for money. I made a lot of money and we bought a lot of drugs. It got to the point where... I was just sick. I couldn't handle it anymore. I hated my life. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I called my dad and I was like, daddy, I'm a daddy's girl. I love my dad and he's terrific. And I called him and I was like, daddy, I want to come home. I was in Myrtle Beach at the time. And he was like, okay, I'm coming to get you. And he came the next day and he took me and my baby. I left my husband at the beach and I went to Orangeburg back home. I moved in with my mom. Things were okay for a couple days until my stash started to run out and I started getting sick. And I had met another guy who could supply that need that I had. So I started dating him. It wasn't too long after that, though, that I was I was cooking grits in a microwave. And when I cook my grits, I boil them to death. And the microwave was on top of the freezer. And so it was a little bit higher than me. And I was cooking them. And my son, Jameson, was a a baby. And he was crawling around the floor underneath me. And when I went to go get the grits, something happened. And I dropped them. These scalding hot grits. My heart just stopped. And I looked down at my baby. And all around him, the grits had balled. But not one piece of it had hit him. It was God, completely God taking care of him, just protecting his child. That scared me so bad. That was such an eye-opening moment. My husband had come to Orangeburg and he was living with someone else. So I called him and I said, I'm not able to take care of Jameson anymore. Like I can't do it. I want to. I love him, but I don't feel like he's safe with me. And it was the hardest decision that I've you know, ever had to make. But I went and I dropped 
him off with his dad. After that, I didn't really have any reason to moderate my use. I had lost my child. I was out of college, but completely addicted. And the new guy that I had hooked up with, he turned out to be really physically abusive. So once you get into a relationship like that, it's kind of hard to get out of it. And he too was addicted to opiates. So I was with the new guy and we got pregnant. He and I, I had a really hard time not using drugs during my pregnancy. And I remember I would go to the person that we got the pills from. I went to him and I was like, dude, don't sell me anything. I'm actually pregnant and I can't stop. I want to stop and I can't. I've tried to. So please don't sell me anything anymore. And he was like, all right, baby girl, I got you. Like, no problem. 100%. I got your back. And then after like 24 hours, 48 hours and the withdrawals would start and my neck would start sweating. My hands, my feet even would start sweating. My stomach started turning and I started feeling like I was going to absolutely die. I would go back to him and I would be like, dude, please hook me up. And he was like, all right, baby girl, I got you. And it wasn't his responsibility to keep me clean, but I couldn't do it. I struggled so hard and I prayed every day that the baby was going to be okay because I wondered what kind of person doesn't stop using for their child. Like what kind of person does that? And my opinion of myself just plummeted. I hated who I was and I hated what I was doing. I realize now that addiction is so powerful, a disease. Addiction is just as strong as like your desire for food, water, air, shelter, and procreation like sex. Like addiction becomes a sixth biological need. It's insane how powerful it is. So that explains it now, but I didn't understand that at the time. And I just thought I was a terrible person. When he was born, they put a police officer outside of my door in the hospital. A lady from CPS came. I was in the hospital bed and she asked me, "Uh, Amanda, do you have a crib? And I was like, no, ma'am. She said, do you have a car seat to take the baby home? And I was like, no, ma'am. She said, do you have clothes, food? What is your home like? I was like, I don't have anything. And she said, you know, you're not going to be able to take your child home. And I was like, yeah, I know. And because at that point, James, it was so crazy. My heart, I guess it had been hurt so much that it just froze over. It's almost like it got hard and I didn't care anymore. I just wanted out of the hospital. I just didn't want to go to jail. And that was all I was thinking about. I just wanted out. I called a cousin and she came and took custody of the baby. And I went home. About four days later, I came back to the ER with my boyfriend because he had something going on. So we were in the ER and waiting and waiting and waiting. It occurred to me as we're down there, I have a baby upstairs. And I told him, I said, I'm going to go check on the baby. And I went to the elevator and I pushed the button. And in that elevator, something happened as the door shut. I could see my reflection and I didn't recognize who I was. My hair was falling out in chunks. I had developed hepatitis C from the intravenous drug use. And I was yellow and puffy. My fingernails were just completely just dirty and short. And I had on like these men jeans. They were way too big for me. And they were all muddy at the bottom. I was just a mess. I didn't even know who I was. I got out of the elevator and I went over there to like, you can look through the window and see the babies. Yep. And I was looking for my baby and I found him. And he was laying there all asleep, kind of propped up so other people could see him and he was sleeping. 
I don't know why I did this to this day. I just don't understand what was going through my head. But I went to the nurse's station and I knocked on the door. And this sweet little Southern nurse comes out. And I was like, hey, do you remember me? She gave me kind of a puzzled look. And she was like, oh, of course I remember you. And I said, do you think there's any way I could see the baby? And she said, of course you can see the baby. She was amazing. And I don't know who she is and I'll probably never know, but she did that for me. And she pushed the baby into like this little room off to the side and she cracked the door. And she said, you just take as much time as you need. All the hardness that I had felt, all the icicles around my heart suddenly piercingly broke in that moment. And I was struck with clarity like I'd never experienced before. And I could see my life for who I was and what I'd done and what I had done to this child and how I would never see him take his first step or say his first word or go on his first date. That was not going to be a part of my life. I would never know this child. I looked down at him and I just started apologizing. And I was like, I'm so sorry. This is not me. And I apologized and I was crying. Tears were kind of hitting the little blanket. And I was afraid he was going to wake up. I didn't want to wake him up. So I left the hospital. After that, I didn't really feel like I had anything to live for. I was ready to die. I was well on my way. I saw a doctor told me that with the hepatitis C, I would be dead by the time I was 30. If I continued to drink and abuse drugs, I had no like coping mechanisms to deal with that information except for drinking and using drugs. So that's what I did. And it was bad at home. My boyfriend was really abusive. I had cracked ribs and it was rough. I'm so sorry. You know, I'm glad now that I've been through it because I'm able to understand what other women feel when they go through it. I believe that everything that I've been through, God can use it for his magnificent purposes. What happened with your first child, your first son? was with your your ex-husband. Did he raise your son or what happened? Yes, he did. He raised my son. He loved him so much and he was a really good dad. So Amanda, you're in an abusive situation. You're sustaining injuries. You are very ill with hepatitis C. You can't really go on much longer like this. What happened next? What was life like thinking that you may not live that much longer? And I didn't even want to live, James. It was nuts. And I was so young. I left the boyfriend and I became homeless. I would walk around at night in neighborhoods and I would check car doors. And if they were unlocked, I would crawl into their back seat and sleep. And then I would get up and leave before they got up and got their kids ready for school in the morning. And I slept in this abandoned house a bunch of nights. And then if I was lucky, I was able to get a motel room. Somewhere in there, I had stopped abusing drugs and only was drinking. It's like drugs were harder to get. They were more expensive, but alcohol was accessible everywhere and it was really cheap. So I became just a straight alcoholic roaming the streets. So that was a situation you're on your own at this point. There was no, there were no boundaries around you. There was nobody who knew whether you were coming or going or where you were. Well, I still had dealings with the old boyfriend. We would be back together. And kind of what happened was 
One night, me and my boyfriend and his brother were driving around town and we were trying to come up with a plan to get some money. We had come up with this plan that I was going to go into a bar and I was going to find a man who looked like he had money and I was going to trick him into coming outside the bar with me and they were going to rob him. And the plan was that if I had my hair pulled up into a ponytail, then that was their signal to rob him. But if I had my hair down, then that was their signal to leave him alone and that I would get the money another way. So I went into this bar and I saw this guy sitting alone at the bar. I started talking to him. And a few minutes later, I said, do you want to get out of here? And he followed me out of the bar. And as we were walking, I pulled the hair tie that was around my wrist off and I put my hair up in a high ponytail. And when they saw that my hair was up, it was 15 minutes later, they had that man on his knees outside of his car with a gun pointed at his head. And he was begging for his life. It was loud and it was scary and I was intoxicated, but I mean, I did the crime. I did what I did and we got his money and we took off. We got alcohol and we were on the way home and we lived kind of in the woods down this dirt road. Now you could see blue light at our house just lit up like Christmas. We knew that we we're about to get arrested. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Were you terrified or were you really still under the influence and didn't really realize what was going on? That's a really good question. And I've often thought about it because I want to take responsibility for my crime 100%. I did what I did. But I also was kind of persuaded by the abusive boyfriend that this was what I needed to do. In my mind, I remember thinking when they put me in the police car, why am I going to jail? I didn't do anything. I didn't have the gun. And I didn't realize that South Carolina has a law called the hand of one is the hand of all. Oh. Even if you're with somebody committing a crime, you go to jail. Guilty, right. Gotcha. So what happened then? Well, that was January the 10th, 2006. And I didn't go back to court for a year. And that last year, it was really just the worst year. But I went before a judge and she sentenced me to five years in prison. That was earth shattering. I didn't know how to live one day without alcohol. How could I live five years? Hmm. And my dad was there. I saw the heartbreak on his face and they took me to a cell and I had kind of showed out in the courtroom. And as a consequence, they put me in a paper suit and they gave me a green mattress to sleep on and I had to put it on the floor. And I was laying on this green mattress first day. And ironically, it was January the 10th of 2007. Mm-hmm. So weird how orderly things were. Yeah. And I was laying there and I was staring up at the bottom of this stainless steel toilet, shivering, shaking, sweating, sick. And I prayed. And it was the first prayer that I'd really genuinely prayed in a long time. I prayed to my dad's God, because I didn't really know God. And so I prayed and I said, if you're real God, then you can have me. I don't know if there's anything redeemable left in me, but if there is, you can have it. I can't do this anymore. I give up. I completely give up. And in that moment, I felt the spirit of God. I felt the Holy Spirit come into that jail cell where I was and surround me with love and hope. And I had not felt hope in so long. I was completely hopeless. 
But suddenly I had this tiny little smidge. Maybe there's a God out there who could help me. Maybe. And I began to just hold on to that. That is amazing. And I'm thinking you're going through withdrawals from alcohol. So my guess is there's not much more of a miserable feeling, except maybe drug withdrawal. The fact that you had hope in the middle of that horrible withdrawal. What happened next? That's a really good point. I haven't even ever thought about it like that before. So that's really cool. The fact that I've had hope. That's just another little God nudge. What happened next was everything about me changed. (laughs) I began to be upbeat and happy and it made no sense. And I remember they were booking me. They were like asking me all these questions and I was just as cheerful as can be because I believed in God. I believed that there was something better for me out there and that it was beginning. And it was, that was my sobriety date is January the 10th of 2007. I have not had a need to pick up a drink or do a drug since that day. That was 14 years ago. I had reason to be excited because things were getting better. (laughs) You're excited about this feeling of hope, but I can't help but ask you this. Are you a little scared being in prison? (laughs) 100%. I was super scared. (laughs) How did your newfound hope line up with this fear of sort of the unknown of being in prison? Who's in prison with you? It was like every person who was in prison had been in prison before and they all knew each other and were this huge friend group and I was not in it, you know, and it was completely different than anything I'd ever experienced before. It was so scary. The COs, the correctional officers were tough and they would yell at you and I can't handle it. My little emotions were coming back and (laughs) I was so sensitive, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you know, my dad was there for me. He would answer every collect call. He would write me. He would send me birthday cards. He sent me a birthday card from the cat said, love squirt. He was there for me. (laughs) So your dad was keeping in touch with you. He was giving you that connection to home. Did he at this time now know that you'd had a personal faith experience? I'm so glad you asked that. I love that question. It's so funny because in the past, anytime that I would get sober or decide, quote unquote, to get sober, I would run and tell my dad. I would be like, guess what, daddy? I'm getting sober. You don't have to worry about me anymore. You just wait and see. And then inevitably, I would use again. And I remember laying on that mattress in that jail cell, and I had that feeling come over me. And I had the urge to jump up and go call him Colette. I settled myself and I said, no, we're not going to call him and tell him. We're just going to show him this time. That's huge because our words can be cheap. Our words can be fleeting. doesn't mean we're not sincere at that moment, but exactly showing is really how you authenticate, right? It is. That's kind of when I knew something is different this time. He began to see the changes in me immediately. He got me my first Bible and sent it to me in prison. I still have it. It's the Bible that I use, all written up, torn up, and drawn in the margins, but it's my Bible, you know. He visited me in prison every single weekend. He would come. He would drive from Orangeburg to Columbia. It wasn't easy at first. I still craved drinking. I was still having cravings for alcohol. And I remember they placed me in the kitchen as a kitchen worker. I got up real early one morning 
to go to my job in the kitchen. And I thought, oh, I bet they have some lemon extract in there, you know, like vanilla extract. And you know what extract is? (laughs) Alcohol. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to get some of that, catch a little buzz. I got in there and I was looking at all the bottles and they were huge. And then like medium sized print, it says 0% alcohol, you know? (laughs) Ouch, ouch, but good, right? Yes. I'm so grateful now. Yes. God doing for me what I could not do for myself. The very next day, I got called to participate in ATU, is an addiction program within the prison. So I moved dorms, I moved jobs, and it was six months of intense therapy, group therapy, individual therapy, all focused around creating a new life, a new way of thinking, recovering from drugs and alcohol. And I just, I went at it. One thing about a lot of alcoholics and addicts is that we don't do anything halfway. <laughs> like we're never just like, yeah, I'm a, you know, step and toe, you put my toe in. We are all or nothing. And I was like, we're going to do recovery. We're going to do it good. You know, I'm going to make it A, you know? <laughs> and so I just. <laughs> no more point four sevens, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I did that program and I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot about myself and about the disease that I had, the disease of addiction. When I got out of that program, I wanted to be a part of another program called Operation Get Smart. It was a team of inmates who traveled around the state of South Carolina. And we spoke as a part of a crime prevention team at schools, churches, rehabs. I think they did the tally. And in the time that I was on that team, I spoke to over 100,000 people telling my story. Wow. How many of you were on this team that was traveling around? It was three male inmates and two female inmates. So five of us. It just drilled it into my head. We're trying to teach these kids, like, don't do drugs. And I was teaching myself, too. Yeah. So (laughs) you're going around doing this, which is wonderful you're doing that. But you also have to come back to prison every night. And particularly in the beginning, when you first got there, who were you to the inmates? Were you a uh, hardened criminal or a... A, a young kid who really hadn't got any experience. What, you asked the best questions. <laughs> how were you viewed? Were, were people afraid of you? Were they in awe of you? What do they, you think? They, they weren't afraid of me, for one. <laughs> Nobody was afraid of me. <laughs> I'm soft-spoken and sweet. You know, I try to be nice to people. And so I got the nickname in prison of Care Bear. That is my big, hard prison name, Care Bear. So... <laughs> Terrifying, right? Care Bears <laughs> unit. So that was your nickname. Were you being protected by anybody or did you not need protection or? It's funny Sorry. because I am this little shrimp scared of my own shadow. And my friends who surrounded me, who chose me to be their friends, they were women who were serving a long time and they had been in prison for a long time and they had important and powerful jobs on the prison. My roommate was the canteen worker. And if you're the canteen worker in prison, then you are literally on top of everyone else, you know? (laughs) Yes, you are literally on top of the food chain, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And the soap (laughs) chain and the toothpaste chain. So, (laughs) yeah. 
My grandfather told me when he was in World War One that he always made best friends with the cook right away. <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> good strategy. And same thing with the, the person who's in charge of the canteen. And her friends, like if anybody ever tried to mess with me, they would be after them. I remember this one time I came in from Get Smart and I was crying because somebody had said something ugly to me. And one of my friends saw me crying and she was mad. And she went storming down the hall to find the other girl. And in the meantime, the other two of my friends had <laughs> caught wind that something was going down and Care Bear was crying. And they all rushed <laughs> to go confront the girl. And I was just like, oh, you know, don't fight. <laughs> I did. I had protection. I had really good friends. I made some amazing friends in prison. Is it fair to say or ask you this question? Had you not gone to prison, would you still be alive? No, I can answer that without hesitation. I know for a fact. I think some people can get sober by going to rehab and just going to 12-step meetings and maybe going to church. I think some people can, but the progression of my disease, I never would have been able to. I had to be locked up behind bars and forced into a treatment program in order to get sober. You had mentioned to me in a prior conversation that there was a radio station that you were listening <gasps> to. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I was convinced I was done with everything from my old life. Like everything had to go from the clothes that I wore to the music I listened to. So we had these little radios and I was listening to this Christian radio station. I would listen to all the songs. So one day I heard them asking for money. We're a nonprofit. We run from your donations. It's sat there in my prison. So, and I was like, dang, I can't really do that. I don't have a way to send them any money. I was like, I'll send them a letter. And so I sat down and I wrote my little letter out to them. And I was like, hey, I just want to let you know that you're the best station in the world. I'm actually locked up, but I don't feel locked up because I get to listen to your station. So I hope you raise all the money that you need and send it to them. A couple of weeks later, I was getting ready in my cell and I heard my letter being read over the radio station. Oh, boy. I could not believe it. And they were reading it as if I were reading it. They had a girl reading it. And they signed it Mandy at the end. I guess they changed my name. And I was just hyped. So that was really, really cool. And about a year later, I was in chapel one day and I had given my friend my Bible to hold my seat in chapel and I came in and she put me on the front row at church. I was like, you just saved my seat on the front row at church. Like we don't sit on the front row. But I sat down and I sat down next to this girl. She was new to prison. You could tell her shoes were still really clean and she still had that scared deer in the headlight look. We started chatting and I asked her what kind of music she listened to. And she said, mostly I listen to WMHK. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. I listened to that too. And then she turns to me and grabs my arm and she goes, are you Mandy? And I was like, she heard the letter. I was like, I am Mandy. I had written like a first draft and a second draft. So I had the first draft of my letter in my Bible and I pulled it out and I was like, look, I'm Mandy. <laughs> there's a proof. And here's the proof. And tears just started falling down her face. And she said, I knew I was going to prison. So I had a felony DUI. And then one day I hear that letter being read over the radio station. And I felt so much peace knowing that there would be at least one person in prison that was godly and that loved God as much as I did. 
And she said, I was going to try to find you no matter what. And she found me. All right. God hooked us right up. And we are still the best of friends. (laughs) Amanda, you had mentioned to me also that your dad wrote you a lot of letters and he came to visit you. But didn't he also reach out to some other people in the uh, in the prison system? as well. He did. He did. He sent me a Bible and it was the coolest Bible because it was actually like leather bound and it had color. And so all my friends would look at it and they were like, Oh, you got a cool Bible. And then I would write my daddy. I'd be like, Hey, can you send Samantha a Bible? She really wants the Bible. And he was like, okay. So then she wrote him a thank you note. And then he wrote her back. He started to be like the dad of the prison and it kind of snowballed even after I got out. He would write, he was like their dad. He would give them godly advice and he would send them Bibles. And he still does it to this day. It's unbelievable. I did his taxes one year. Unbelievable how much money he spends on Bibles, but that's his ministry. He wants to send Bibles into the prison and it's amazing. It's not just the Bibles, it's like the emotional and spiritual support that he offers men and women. It's just a beautiful ministry. That is wonderful. He's still doing that now? Yep. He still does it to this day. That's great. Were you in prison for the full five-year sentence? So I actually only did two and a half years. I had to do 65% of my time because it was a nonviolent crime and I got time off for good behavior. So I did 52% and I got out in two and a half years. Let me ask you this. So you walk out the front door or wherever you walk out of the prison with your first day of freedom in front of you, what were your emotions? What was that like? Were you afraid to be free again? Oh my gosh. You're making me remember like so many things. (laughs) Yes. I was afraid. One of my counselors had said, your addiction is out there doing pushups, like meaning to say it was getting stronger and that we needed to be careful. So I was scared that I was going to relapse. I was scared that, you know, my addiction would just come slaughter me and I would end up with a beer in my hand or something. So I was scared, but I remember walking out the gate and Melissa's sister, that was my friend. She had got me my going home outfit and I was walking out the gate and I turned around and my roommate was standing there. Melissa was standing there and they were crying and watching me leave. And my dad was in front of me. It was exciting because I knew it was like the first day of the rest of my life. I knew it. And I knew God had something for me. What was the first week or two like when you got home? Did you go back with your dad? Yes, he actually took me home. <gasps> James, let me tell you this too. This yes, is just crazy. Okay, so I like to write letters to God. If I pray, sometimes I fall asleep. <laughs> so <laughs> I <laughs> did yeah. that myself. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I'm not alone. Um, I would write letters and my brother had developed an addiction after I went to prison and I remember writing God a letter and I was like, God, please be with my brother. Please help him help my dad, like help him get sober so that we can all hang out and be a family when I get home. And my brother was then arrested, sent to prison and he was released the day before I was released from prison. Wow. So did he come home to your dad's house too? He did. It was three of us, my dad and two felons, his two felon children. (laughs) Sitting around the dinner table. What are you talking about? (laughs) A lot of prison. (laughs) 
he said, people used to say, what do your kids do? And he said, they work for the state. (laughs) Which we did. I'm laughing, but seriously, it seems in the case of your family, how your experience, I'm not sure about your brother's experience in prison, but it really changed your life for the better. At least I should say that God changed your life for the better, but he used the prison system and your time there to Mm -hmm. save your life and redirect it. Yeah, absolutely. When I got out of prison, it was recommended to me that I go to 12-step meetings, that I attend CR, Celebrate Recovery. It's a 12-step meeting, this Jesus-centered rather than a higher power, and that I go to church, and I did all of those things with vigilance. So I went hard at my recovery. I got a sponsor, and I started working the steps, and I got a job. I was working at my job one day. There was a cute little girl working with me, and she had on a brand-new diamond engagement ring. And I was like, oh my gosh, congratulations. I said, who are you marrying? And she said the name of my victim of my crime. And my heart stopped. She was young. So I was like, there's no way. This guy was a little bit older. And so I started asking her about it. And she said that her fiance was a junior. So I had robbed his dad. I was on the part of the 12 steps where you make direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure you or others. And I had already written out an amend letter to him. He was from a different county. I should never have seen him again. I knew I would never be able to deliver this letter, but I wrote it anyway because I was sincerely sorry. I asked her to hook us up and see if he would be willing to come to the restaurant where I worked. And she came back the next day and she said, yes. He said, I can give you his number. And he came in to the restaurant where I worked, sat down at a table across from me, and he allowed me to make amends to him. He allowed me to apologize to him for what I'd done. And I was sincere in my apology. And he had some things to say too. He let me know how the crime had affected him. It traumatized him. And so we got it from the table. He's a huge guy. And he puts a big burly arm around my shoulders. And he was like, I just want to let you know, I do forgive you. And I was like, feels good. (laughs) And uh, wow, wow. When we spoke earlier, you had not mentioned that. You really knocked my socks off with that one. You were at that step in the program. Little did you know. (laughs) Little did I know. Part of the amends is like not just saying you're sorry, but actually doing something to make up for what you did. So I paid him back the money that we took from him that night. It was a lot of money and I was a waitress and I couldn't do it all at once. So every Monday I would get a $50 money order and I would mail it to his house until I got that entire debt paid off. People were like, that's crazy. You don't even have to. I wasn't court ordered, but I had to, you know, I had to. My heart, God told me like, you have to do that. There's a proverb that says fools mock at making amends for sin. And I was like, I ain't no fool. So I got him paid off. It was really a gift to me, honestly. Yeah. And I give him a huge amount of credit for coming to meet with you. Yeah, absolutely. That is probably a big part of healing is to say you're sorry to somebody who you've hurt and also to forgive people, conversely, people who have hurt us or you and in your life, uh, it is so freeing and cleansing. It is. 
Absolutely. My 12-step program and my relationship with God worked together. They played off each other. I believe God gave me my 12-step program and said, okay, I need you to do this. You know, (laughs) you need to make all these amends. But he held my hand through the entire thing. And I got up early and I prayed every day and I journal every night and I was in church and keeping my relationship with God strong. And I went to this convention in Myrtle Beach and my son and his father were living in Myrtle Beach at the time. And so I asked him if I could see Jameson and I hadn't seen him in years, James. And he said, yes. Oh, how old is Jameson at this time? He was six and I hadn't seen him since he was like two. And kids grow a lot from two to six. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was so nervous when I was in prison. I had no way of getting in touch with him. No address, no phone number, nothing. And so I would write a letter to Jameson every Sunday. I would write him this letter and I would mail it to my dad. And then my dad would transcribe it to an email and send it to Jameson's dad. And I didn't know if he was reading the letters or what, but I've sent him all these letters. and He was on my mind and on my heart. I prayed for him so much. And so I was finally going to get to see him again after all these years. And the love was not lost. I still loved him so much. And he came into the hotel room where I was staying. And he was so tall. And we were both shy. I was looking at him. And he was kind of looking at me and <laughs> gave him a little hug, you know, like, hey, hey, buddy. And um, we walked out to the balcony, just me and him. He looks over at me and he goes, are you my mom? And I was like, yeah. He goes, well, then I love you, mommy. And I was like, oh my gosh, baby, I love you. And then he did it again. He looked out the water and he goes, I love you, mommy. And I was like, oh, honey, I love you. And I gave him a big hug. And then he's just kind of looking out again. He goes, I love you, mommy. And I was like, why does he keep saying this? Mm -hmm. You know? And I realized it was because he had never been able to use those four words in a sentence before. I love you, mommy. He'd never been able to taste that and say that to his mommy because I'd never been a part of his life. That struck me. And I made a decision right then and there that no matter what, if he wanted to say he loved me, then he would be able to. I was not going to be missing from his life. And I noticed a few little things about his dad. Um, He kind of had a look, you know, in his eye. Jameson's shoes were a little tight. You know, his hygiene wasn't great. So I went home and I got a lawyer and I did everything the lawyer asked me to do, I was hoping that I could get weekend visitation with him so that I could take him to church and bunch some new clothes and get him a haircut and love him. I stood before a judge and she granted me full custody of my son. Full custody. Full custody. And he came home. He came home to me. He was seven years old and he's home now. How old is Jameson now? He's 18. I'm proud of him. Amanda. I have to ask you, what happened with your second child? That's a really good question. So he was adopted by these amazing people. And it's so funny because my child, my second child was born with red hair. And I don't have red hair. His father didn't have red hair. It's nowhere in our family. I have no idea why he had this red hair, but he did. And the people who adopted him without ever even seeing him, the dad has red hair. (laughs) And so... (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. And they are a huge part of the church. He goes to an excellent school. He's very well taken care of. I was at a Relay for Life one day with Jameson when he was about eight. And I've always been really upfront with Jameson. He knows everything. 
we were standing in line to get some French fries and I looked through the crowd and I saw him. I saw my son that I had given up for adoption. And I grabbed Jameson's hand and I was like, oh, look, that's your brother. And so we're both just staring at this kid. And all of a sudden the music came over the loudspeakers and this kid, he has no idea we're looking at him. He starts dancing and he is <laughs> dancing to this music. And I felt the spirit of God say to me, look, he's fine. He's dancing. He's perfectly okay. And I, I feel good. I feel good about it. If he ever wants to find me, ask questions or be mad at me or have a relationship, I'll be there. And I'll be sober one day at a time. And I'm ready for it if it were to happen. But it might never. But I'm okay with that, too. And you're okay. So now you've got your son back. You continue to go to 12-step programs. Your life is going well. You're working. What else happens in your life as you put more and more time between you and coming out of prison? This is the fun part. Good. (laughs) I went back to school and... I got my associate's degree. I graduated at the tip top of my class, James. It was crazy. Congratulations! I know. They pulled me on stage and gave me like this plaque and everything. I was just shocked. But I worked hard for those A's. I had a professor who was super kind to me and he heard my story and he wanted to help. He said, have you ever thought about applying for a pardon? And I was like, no, not really. He said, well, let me show you the process. And he showed me how to do it. And so I did. I applied for a pardon. About a year after I put my application in, I was back in front of a board and they asked me a bunch of questions and they granted me a full pardon by the state of South Carolina. My record is pardoned now. I I could be a nurse if I wanted to. Now the felonies are gone. The misdemeanors are gone. They're on there. Like people were to look, it just says pardon next to it, which looks better than it not saying pardon. (laughs) What else has happened in your life? So I got insurance. I know medical insurance is a big deal. <laughs> I was like, I need to go to the doctor and figure out this hepatitis stuff. Go ahead and get the treatment. They have something now that is supposed to treat it. And so I went to the doctor and he was like, you have to go to the hospital and get your liver biopsied. And I was like, okay, like, don't yell at me. I'm sorry. I'll go. And I went to the hospital and I got that done. And I came back to his office. He comes into the room and he goes, good news. Your body has healed itself and you no longer have hepatitis C. I was like, no, I don't think so, doc. You don't get rid of hepatitis C. I think you can A and B, but not C. He said in very small percent of cases, the body will actually rid the virus. He said the antibodies are there proving that you did have hepatitis, but the viral part is completely gone. And anything the medicine could have done, your body is already done. But of course, I don't believe that my body did that. I believe that I believe that God did that. And I think he did it just for the wow factor. Wow. You know, God's like, I can do whatever I want. You were walking the street and doing all these drugs. He's like, boom, I'm going to make you a teacher. (laughs) I I can do whatever I want. (laughs) Whether you like it or not, Amanda. Yeah. God was just flexing. He was like, hepatitis what? Hepatitis who? (laughs) You must've been dumbfounded by that. You must've been like, What a piece of good news that is. Yeah, it's amazing. I had always been kind of reserved about letting people know the status of my hepatitis C, but after he healed it, I became really open. This needs to be shouted from the rooftop. People need to know what God can do. And that is only one of the smallest things that he's done. Gosh, (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing. 
I'm very active in my church. I'm on staff at my church. I was at church one day and there was a young man. Here we go again. This is how the good stories start. So I've met this guy. <laughs> go ahead. He was sweet and flirtatious and he loved Jesus with all of his heart. And he fell hard and fast for me um, long before I fell hard and fast for him. But we're married now and we have a great relationship and he prays with me and he prays for me. And he's actually a pastor at our church. We have several pastors, but he's a pastor. So how long have you been married? Um, we're about to celebrate four years. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So Amanda, do you and your husband live near your dad? Yes, actually, we do live. We live really close to him, too. And my dad and I still have a really awesome relationship. I go see him a lot. And <laughs> he's praying for us right now as we speak, you and I. I called him and I was like, Daddy, I'm doing this podcast. I'm super scared. And he was like, you'll do great. So I truly believe with all my heart, he's praying. And we go to the same church. And he's just he's a huge support. He's a huge part of my life. So Amanda, what are the things that you're doing now? I understand that you go around speaking to different organizations. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. It's funny because the job that I have now, I got from speaking. I was taking a 12-step meeting to the adolescents at a treatment center, and I got to know the staff really well. And probably like 10 years later, there was a job opening here at this addiction facility, and I applied for it, and I got it. Now I work as a peer support specialist and I work with young women and young men and all the kind of people. And I try to help them lead them out of that dark cave of addiction and show them what I did to get out in hopes that they'll take the same step. So every single day I'm reminded of addiction and the toll it takes on a person's mind and health and family. It's amazing job. I love what I'm able to do. Love it. You had mentioned earlier about it sort of equipped you to be able to help others now. And yeah, exactly. What you've been through and what you've come out of and your deep faith is such an important thing when you're reaching out to people who maybe are where you were at when you were sort of wandering around. And as you said, you were probably not long for this world at the time mm -hmm. that you actually were arrested. And the fact that you might be running into people today or next week or a month from now who are right on the edge like mm -hmm. you were. And I just couldn't think of any better person to be sitting with and talking with a person who's struggling like that than you, because you have a real heart for people who are hurting in addiction and feeling hopeless. Because what you said when you were in that cell and you were drying out and you were miserable and you had the DTs, the seed of hope all of a sudden appeared through your faith. That was the beginning. Even though you felt miserable, you knew that something was happening in you. And I feel that you're probably helping plant that feeling in people who are also struggling today. I really hope so. I really hope so. And that was my request, my prayer request when I talked to my dad. I want people to have hope. There's so many people who are walking around and they're completely hopeless and we have no idea what's going on in their head. And there are so many people who are thinking about ending it all and are thinking that it's never going to get better than whatever they're in. And it's just not true. 
your life can be completely opposite of whatever it is. It can be brand new. It doesn't matter how old you are, your situation. God can change things. It just comes from like a sincere desire to walk with him and to do the things that he laid out in the Bible, love others and be generous and keep that relationship with him. I'm not perfect at all. (laughs) I still mess up plenty. I don't do drugs. I don't drink, but I still have my fair share of things that I struggle with, but I'll never lose hope again because I know that God is there and I know that he loves me and he loved me just as much when I was in that abandoned house, curled up against the wall, shaking because I hadn't had a drink of alcohol, dirty, filthy, hungry. He loved that girl just as much as he loves me today. It just blows my mind. Thank God. I'm going to ask you this next question that I think you've largely answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How did your addiction impact the person you are today? That's a really good question. I believe that the person I am today, I don't think I ever would have got to this point in my relationship with God if I hadn't gone through some really hard things. It's hard to believe, but I don't regret it because I'm able to help people with my experiences. It's the basis of who I am and my profession. I also write a blog. And so I write stories. It's called Stories of Life Before and After I Met My Creator. And it's kind of rated R, you know, like there's some graphic details in there, but I just tell it like it is. And I try to give God glory, but I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't gone through the things that I've been through. And what do you want your legacy to be, Amanda? Your legacy to be, gosh. Yeah. Oh, what do I want? I was the sweetest and funniest and prettiest girl. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not it. (laughs) I mean, it wouldn't hurt, but no, that's not it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that people would know my heart that I have for women, especially for men and women who struggle with addiction. I would hope that they would see how amazing God has shown up in my life and know that he can do it for them too. Does that make sense? It makes very, very good sense, Amanda. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the time that you have given to me, to our podcast, to our listeners. You did mention about your blog. How can people read your blog? It's Amanda Cisco. It's spelled C-I-S-C-O. Samantasisco.wordpress.com. It'll pop right up, but be prepared. <laughs> yes, I, I started to read it to my wife and we were very much impacted by it. We just saw the tip of the iceberg, but thank you for all the work that you do, for being so honest about your story and about your life, your faith. I really hope that you have a continued ministry of success and that God continues to bless your work. Thank you so much, James. And thank you for what you do. This is so important too. And I love, I love your podcast. It's really meaningful telling stories and you know, Jesus was a great storyteller. That's what he did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He got his message across. That's for sure. (laughs) Thanks again, Amanda. Thank you. 
So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.